Last week, I had the privilege of sitting down with industry luminary Tim Howes to talk about his career and get his insights into the world of software. This special episode is that interview. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. All right, let's get right into our interview with Tim Howes. Really excited to have Tim Howes on the podcast this week. Tim Howes has an illustrious career, both in software engineering and also in some more computer science fundamentals. And we're going to talk to him about his career going all the way back to the beginning through to today. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, Tim, let's go all the way back to the beginning. How did you first get interested in computing? How did your education yeah. start? Well, uh, so I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and went to the University of Michigan. My undergrad degree was actually in aerospace engineering, and so I got interested in computers through the engineering program there and through aerospace and, uh, you know, like doing computer-aided design for, uh, you know, wings of aircraft and so on. And then, But by the time I realized, like, I... I liked computers for their own sake. I was already a, a senior, and so I finished up in aerospace and then did a master's and then PhD in computer science after that. So during your PhD, you got interested in the idea of directory access protocols, is my understanding, and that actually led to your yeah. work on LDAP, if I'm correct. Can you tell us a bit about what LDAP is and why it was so important and what kind of problem it was solving? Yeah, so LDAP, uh, first of all, is the lightweight directory access protocol, and it is the it's kind of the internet directory protocol. So if you use, uh, you know, an email address book or you uh, many times authenticate, you know, to a, to a website, um, behind the scenes you're using you're using LDAP or that website's using LDAP to, to authenticate you. Uh, I actually got, um, I, was, I was doing my PhD and I'm interested in, in uh, distributed systems, large-scale distributed databases, and um, I was having a hard time focusing on, like, what was the actual, you know, topic I wanted to do. And so I actually took a couple of years off and worked for the university, worked for the university's uh, information technology division. And it was there that I encountered the need for directory service where the uh, University of Michigan had a, a big mainframe system called MTS, the Michigan Terminal System, which is a story for another day, but it's a fantastic uh, operating system. But they were trying to move off of that into more distributed stuff, Unix, and, um, you know, giving people PCs and Macs uh, on their desktop. And one of the things that the mainframe system had was a directory where you could look anybody up. And so at the time we were, uh, I was, uh, you know, hired in as a young whippersnapper. I was told to bring up uh, this X500 directory. X500 is the uh, OSI directory service from the International Standards Organization. And there was an implementation that was freely available at the time. It was called ISO-DE. And I was told to bring that up and get it running. And what I found was it was just way too uh, complex and big to run on any of these little computers that people had on their on their desktop. So LDAP, through a much longer thing that I won't bore you with, grew out of uh, an effort to make something that was more appropriate, lighter weight, uh, that people could run on their on their desktops, and you know, really initially as a front end to uh, the X500 directory, but over time as an independent thing that could could work on its own. And LDAP is really used like everywhere. How does something go from being an idea to an implementation to really getting such wide adoption? Yeah, I that's one thing I uh, I'm really happy you know doing that in a university environment. Um, 
at the time, you know, first as a, as a university employee and then as a grad student, as I sort of use that as the basis of my PhD eventually, you know, first thing I did was create an open source implementation. So, you know, people could use it. We did it under a kind of Berkeley BSD like copyright. So take it, use it freely, do whatever you want to it. Just, you know, preserve some credit. We did, you know, we did more. I worked with a small team of people there. And we did a server implementation. We did a client side library implementation, completely, you know, freestanding. We uh, created some clients to use it. So we really just, you know, kind of took everything that we were doing for use on the U of M campus and made it freely available to people. And so, you know, companies like at the time, you know, Microsoft had was doing Active Directory. And so other companies like, you know, Banyan and Novell and other folks, IBM, were able to pick up that code and just sort of use it as the base or at least as a, as a reference point for the things that, that they were doing. So I think that's a big part of it was freely available implementation. And then at some point I was approached, um, you know, people liked the things that we had done. And so I was approached to, you know, hey, you should try to standardize this and why don't you come work with the IETF and do that. And so that was the other thing that really helped was, you know, at the time, those internet standards, SMTP for mail, um, you know, HTTP was just barely starting to come up. Um, and so people were really interested in standards-based versions of things. So you weren't locked into, you know, Microsoft or IBM or whoever you've been using. And so taking that route with LDAP, I think, was kind of what, you know, sealed its fate as uh, something that, you know, really started to take over the world. And were you always planning to make it open source and make it a, a common standard? Was there ever a interest in making it proprietary? And what were kind of the pros and cons of it over some of the proprietary solutions like Active Directory? Well, you know, I mean, we never thought about making it uh, proprietary. In fact, you know, one of the major uh, advantages was always that, you know, it was, it was open source and it was standards based and it could be um, used by anyone. Um, so that right there was one of the big advantages where, you know, there was a protocol that defined how different ends of the system interacted with one another. And so having that protocol meant that, you know, you could have interoperability between different vendors, whether, you know, your client was from Microsoft and your server was from IBM or vice versa. And so, that was, you know, and I think being part of the university environment, that was pretty ingrained in me to begin with. And I was part of a group at that university environment, which was very much into uh, open source. And, you know, Unix was our platform of choice. And so uh, this is also the time where, you know, like Richard Stallman was starting to make a big uh, splash about the Free Software Foundation and everything. And um, so it was pretty ingrained, I would say, from the beginning. So you worked on LDAP, and then a mm -hmm. few years later, you ended up in Netscape. Can you tell us how you got from LDAP to Netscape and what it was like being at Netscape during the big internet boom of the 1990s? Yeah. So I was, um, so I had done LDAP open source. You know, it gained a certain amount of popularity, uh, especially within the academic community. And um, I was finishing up my PhD and kind of looking for a job, like, what am I going to do next? And so I had interviewed at, uh, at Microsoft. I had an offer from them. I had interviewed at uh, IBM and AT&T. And so I was thinking of, you know, take my PhD and go into research at one of these places. And uh, Netscape actually approached me and said, um, there's a very interesting email I got from a guy named Eric Hahn at Netscape who was running their server side of their, um, of their company at the time. And he said he was really interested in using the popularity of Netscape Navigator to promote LDAP. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. 
And so I was kind of at this decision point in my career where I was like, okay, now I have an opportunity to kind of double down on what I've done with LDAP or I can go do something else. And it turned out that Netscape was, uh, they needed a directory to kind of power all these other servers that they were putting together, web server, mail server, calendar server, and so on. And so this was a, you know, kind of a linchpin of, of some of the things that they were doing. And so, um, you know, that was when I, w- I went out and I interviewed with them. I met Mark Andreessen and other folks out there. That was when I met Ben Horowitz as, too, as well. Uh, and so I decided to go to Netscape and it was really like their embrace of LDAP and they got, you know, 50 other companies on board to, uh, sort of put the stamp of approval on the standard space version of directory. And of course you need that, you know, if you're not going to have vendor lock-in. And so that was kind of what catapulted LDAP from, you know, a nice open source project in the academic community into something more mainstream that, you know, vendors took seriously. And it was also my first time really appreciating the value of marketing and PR. Um, so, so that's how I got to, that's how I got to Netscape. What was the atmosphere like at Netscape? What was it like working there at that time when it was IPOing and it was the hottest IPO? And yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. I, so I came in, um, it was after the IPO. They had IPO'd, I think, in August of 95. And um, I came in in April of 96. So it was after they had IPO'd. So it was still very exciting. But it was also after Bill Gates had sent out his famous uh, Internet Tidal Wave memo where he had on a dime, very impressively, kind of refocused all of Microsoft on, uh, you know, one, the internet, and very specifically, two, killing Netscape. So uh, it was, you know, both exciting because, you know, internet was big and Netscape was at the center of it, but also, like, we had awakened the, uh, the dragon and they were coming for us uh, full bore. And they're fighting the browser war, and yeah. at the same time, you're working on kind of the server division, is my understanding. Yeah. And so what was it like within the company between the server division versus the client division? Yeah, and, you know, Netscape had made all of its revenue uh, off of the client division at the time. And then, you know, Microsoft's first move was, uh, well, we have browsers and they're free. And, of course, they make their money from selling operating systems and selling the office suite. So it's easy for them to do that. So Netscape, to their credit, you know, understood that they had to kind of move to um, the server division really being the one that, uh, generated the, the revenue. And later on, they also had a, you know, more like uh, net center side, which was you know, kind of like a uh, portal, as we called it at the time. So, you know, it was exciting, but it was also, uh, I would say, very stressful for everybody in the company because, you know, Microsoft was doing things which they later got sued for and, you know, everything, really everything in their arsenal to, uh, as they put it, cut off Netscape's oxygen supply, which was a quote from, uh, I believe, Steve Ballmer at the time. And so, you know, they did things like uh, Netscape had a deal with Compaq where Compaq would bundle Netscape Navigator on their computers. Great for, uh, great for Compaq, great for Netscape. Microsoft called up Compaq and said, we're revoking your right to Windows. Done. And like on a dime, they, you know, they were scheduled to speak at Compaq conferences. Like none of that happened. Like on a day, the entire company just gave Compaq the cold shoulder and threatened to pull their uh, license to Windows unless wow. they dropped Netscape Navigator, which they did. You know, as you can imagine, that was a little bit stressful. Um, and uh, really is what kind of led to, you know, some of the antitrust and, uh, you know, other issues that, uh, that plagued Microsoft for a few years after that. When you look back on that period, are there any big lessons that you take away from your time at Netscape? 
Uh, I think, you know, I, one, one was just the value of, of uh, marketing and, and PR, where, you know, I'd been strictly a technology person before that, and I really took that to heart. I think that was, it's hard to overestimate the value of that when you're trying to, um, you know, do something in technology. You know, the second thing was, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna poke the bear or take a shot at the king, like, you know, you better not miss. <laughs> and I think, you know, it was very intentional, um, at the time. I think, uh, you know, Mark and Jim Barksdale and the other folks who were running the company, I think, intentionally kind of, uh, goaded Microsoft. And I don't know that the outcome would have been any different, but if they had taken a more subtle approach, it might have taken them a little longer to realize what was happening. Well, you and Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz went on to found LoudCloud and Opsware. Mm -hmm. Can you tell everyone a bit about what those companies did and what your role was there? Sure. So uh, this was after uh, Netscape was acquired by AOL, America Online, and um, I, I, Mark became CTO of AOL, and I worked for him as VP of technology for about six months there before we left to found LoudCloud. LoudCloud was, I think the easiest way to describe it is it was like Amazon Web Services, uh, but before that was a good idea, like before there was, um, you know, VMware and you had, didn't have virtual servers. So we were, you know, buying physical servers for people. Our differentiation at LoudCloud was because there were other hosting providers at the time, but our differentiation was we were a bunch of software guys and we had developed this software called Opsware, which we used to help automate the running and maintenance, you know, deployment, running maintenance of all the services that we would um, deploy for you. We actually were off to a, a bang-up start, I think, um, within a year of uh, founding. You know, first of all, within our first two months, we'd signed our first $2 million customers. Within a year of founding, we'd booked a $40 million quarter, wow. uh, you know, which even today is pretty impressive, but like back then was amazing. And that $40 million quarter also, this was in... We found it in 99, so this was into 2000. And so it was also we're starting to see some volatility in the NASDAQ. And so um, the predicted, we had booked this $40 million quarter. The quarter that was predicted was $100 million, which came in flat at 40. So we really saw some starting, you know, things to, to tail off. Lots of pain and suffering later, we ended up... Uh, selling the managed services business, LoudCloud, to a company called EDS, um, which you may or may not have heard of, out of Plano, Texas, Ross headed Perot, by Ross right. Perot, that's right, yeah. When he wasn't running for president, that's what he was doing at EDS. And we took the software itself and made a company around that. We basically changed the name of from LoudCloud to uh, Opsware and focused on the software itself. And, you know, that was a really interesting transition because we had been hearing from from customers that, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't crazy, especially in what was going on economically in the environment at that point. There's a lot of instability, a lot of companies going out of business. And so they would say to us, you know, I'm not willing to bit my company that your little company is going to be around, but I really like the sound of that software that you told me about. Can you put it in a box and sell it to me? And, um, so that was a big engineering effort in itself to get the software to a point where it was, you know, quote unquote, shrink wrapped for people. Uh, but once we did that, um, Opsware, uh, you know, slowly kind of rose from the ashes um, and uh, had a successful outcome, ultimately. I want to go back to something you were talking about, your time at AOL, and you stayed there for only six months. Yeah. Is there something that you saw at AOL that you were like, I don't really like the way this is going? And of course, there's the famous merger that happened shortly after that with Time Warner. Yeah. Were there any kind of red flags there for you? 
Well, I think the biggest one was um, there were kind of two, and one was that to do anything at AOL, AOL, you really needed to be out in 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 DC. You need to be in Dulles, um, and I was not, and I didn't want to move there. And but that's kind of you know corporate headquarters, and they had been doing so well. There was a lot of um, I think it's like any company, you know, when you're on a tear, like of course I'm the smartest person in the world. I can't, you know, <laughs> you know, I I I think success. You know, you look back and you say, well, it's, of course, because of everything I did as opposed to, you know, anything else. And so there was a lot of, um, I think, in part, that caused them, you know, they weren't really interested in the Netscape technology. They were really interested in the Netscape brand. And that was a big red flag to me that, like, okay, this is this is not what I signed up for. And so, um, you know, at the same time, the whole environment was just booming. I mean, like, startups were everywhere and everyone with a PowerPoint and a heartbeat was getting funded for pretty much anything they wanted to do. And so there was a big, uh, you know, feeling of, of uh, FOMO, I think on my part, fair to say all of our parts, um, that we were missing something that, you know, might not come around again. And when you were talking about the instability, I just want to give our listeners the context. That's of course the dot com crash in 2000. Yeah. And do you think if that hadn't happened, that LoudCloud could have been the AWS or what AWS is today? Were you just too ahead of your time a little bit with the idea, or was it that really the market crash led to some? some um, well, I would love to think that. Uh, so uh, you know, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to predict a different future. Um, but I think we had many of the same ideas. Um, I think uh, you know, certainly if things hadn't crashed uh and we were able to still obtain funding um to grow you know like we wanted to grow i think yeah we could have uh certainly could have uh could have filled that 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 void in the market which you know clearly there was a need for that and the basic idea of you know you bring your business idea and we'll take care of the infrastructure like so you don't have to worry about it and rack and stack servers was uh was a great one um but we'll never know okay Fair enough. Um, so tell us a bit about your career after that. Specifically, I, I read that you did Rockmel, Know Yourself, Clear Story. There's so many great, I'm sure, startup stories here. I was wondering if there's one that you really wanted to concentrate on that you think uh, would provide a lot of value to our listeners. Mm -hmm. But if you want to tell us just um, about each of them and what what they did and then whichever one you want to go to in more detail. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I was to focus on one, it would probably be uh, Rockmel. Um, which is the one I did. Um, so after Opsware was acquired by, by HP in, um, 2007, I think it was. And, uh, I became CTO of HP software, which was, uh, it's a, was at the time was like the third or fourth largest software company in the world, about a $3 billion software company. But it was, you know, a tiny mat on the back of the hundred plus million dollar HP hardware business, which, was hard to be, um, you know, in a software business inside what is really kind of meant to be a hardware company and uh, with a very salesy culture. And so, you know, I'm much more a technology culture kind of guy. So uh, I spent about a year there and then left with uh, my uh, my friend Eric Vishria to co-found Rockmelt, which was an attempt to, uh, the way we described it at the time, sort of the, the tagline was, you know, we're reinventing the browser for, uh, you know, how people use the web today. And the idea was, you know, browsers were at that time almost 20-year-old technology, and they hadn't really changed from the, you know, you've got 
your browser window, you've got bookmarks, you've got, you know, the big invention ha- had been tabs that people created, which is a great invention, right? Yeah. But we thought, you know, with, uh, with social media coming up, with people needing real-time access to things, um, you know, from Twitter to just news stories, RSS readers were big at the time, um, to, you know, how can I integrate my friends in the browser? So we thought about how to do that uh, within the context of the browser by, you know, having, uh, you know, one edge of the browser sort of contain your friends. So if you want to chat with them, they're right there. Another edge of the browser contain your favorite sites, which would, you know, send you notifications if something happened on that site. Um, any page you were on the internet, um, you could click on a browser-based Chrome uh, share button. It would allow you to share that site to your favorite sites, which, by the way, uh, the latest update of Chrome um, just incorporated that feature. So, uh, so that was the idea behind Rockmelt, where you know we're reinventing the browser for how people use the web today, and we founded it just after Google had launched Chrome, which was based on this open source thing, Chromium, that they also created. So we based um, Rockmelt on Chromium as well, and um, I think you know the ultimately two things happened. I think we were um, one, we were slow to adopt mobile. Like I think we would have done better if we because this was. So iPhone came out in, what, 2007, 2008? Yeah. Um, so we were slow to adopt mobile and to see, like, I think there was a, a period there of several years where the mobile space was wide open. Like, somebody could have come in and kind of owned um, browsing and content on uh, on the phone. Uh, and we were slow to do that, although that's kind of how we ended the company. Uh, and then the second thing was just, you know, it's really tough to compete against uh, Google, who was, you know, also had the the browser for the ages, um, where their approach had been different. Like, they had really taken to, let's rewrite the guts of the browser and let's make it, you know, minimal. And um, and they did a great job at that. You know, I'm a Chrome user today. It's my favorite browser. So I, I applaud them. Um, and it's been, you know, somewhat gratifying to see over the years that they've incorporated some of the things that that we pioneered at Rockmelt, like, you know, a browser that you log into and incorporating things into the Chrome, like share and so on. So, um, you know, in some sense, Rockmelt lives on in those, uh, in those innovations. But, um, uh, we, we ended up selling Rockmelt to Yahoo in, uh, 2013. Is this the Marissa Meyer era already? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So she had come in and taken over, uh, maybe a, a year, a little less than a year before we came, uh, before they acquired us. And, um, they had, she had reorganized into one of their divisions, uh, was called mobile and emerging products. And so we got acquired into that division and, uh, I was VP of engineering there and ran engineering for about a year and a half there. And, um, they were growing, you know, we, when I was there, we were growing aggressively through acquisition as well as organic hiring. And I actually, uh, you know, I, I left Yahoo after a year and a half in part because, I felt like um, I appreciate what Marissa was trying to do, but I felt like they had some good properties. Like they were number one in finance. They were number one or two in sports. Like they had these properties that instead of doubling down on those and saying, how can we make the absolute most out of these properties? They were sort of starving those properties to, you know, swing for the fences and try to create, you know, their own Facebook or their own, you know, uh, home run hit. And I just, that is such a hard thing for a big company to do. Um, so I didn't see that they were going to be successful doing that. So tell us what happens after that for you. 
So after that, um, I uh, so I left Yahoo after about a year and a half, and I thought, you know, my idea was I was gonna, you know, I was gonna do another startup, and I looked at a bunch of different stuff, but I had, you know, I'm one of these people, like I'm not one of these people who can just like, okay, any good idea, give it to me, like I like the startup and let's go. I really need to be struck by lightning and feel like I can't sleep at night unless this thing exists in the world. And I need to go do it, and uh, I didn't really come across something like that. So that was when I really started doing more um, advising of companies. Uh, you mentioned Clear Story, which started off as a you know, kind of advisory f- role for me. A friend of mine, Sharmila Mulligan, was, um, uh, was her company that she'd created. So I came in to help her. Um, and in the meantime, you also mentioned Know Yourself, which is actually a, a company my, my wife created in children's education, where uh, based on the belief that we really need to teach our kids about themselves, about their about their bodies, their anatomy, their psychology, their physiology. You know, if you look back, you get to my age, especially you look back and it's like, man, I wish I had known more about my own body and how to take care of it over time. So, you know, when we had kids, we started thinking about how can we, you know, what's the most important thing we want those kids to learn? And lo and behold, we came up with the answer, like, I want to teach them about themselves. I want them to know, know themselves. So I also spent a fair amount of my time uh, helping my wife with her company and just uh, getting it off the ground. It's still going strong today. Uh, I did that for a few years and then I got interested in, uh, in AI and I ended up, uh, actually going to Facebook to work in Facebook's AI group. Um, I had, uh, I had interviewed with, uh, with Apple and Google as well. The big reason I went to Facebook is they seem to have no qualms at giving me a job in the AI group for which I was manifestly unqualified. Like, I, I didn't know anything about AI at the time. So they were sort of, you know, come in, you can learn about it, um, which I did there for a couple of years. And then uh, when I left when I left Facebook, uh, which was just, what, a year and a half ago now, uh, I decided to kind of focus on angel investing full time, which is, which is really what I'm doing now. What excites you about angel investing? I would say two main things excite me. So one is I love that stage of the company. It's my favorite stage of the company where you're, you know, like you're just figuring out what's the product market fit. And it allows me to see a bunch of different new technologies that, you know, I, I can't, uh, you know, it would, it would be hard to learn about on my own. So I get a really broad view of things. And then the second thing is it's exciting when you see that you can help, you know, when you see people making mistakes that, that you've made, you know, I, I just, I, it's exciting to say, oh my God, you know, like I could help you here. Like I actually know how to do that. And, and that's really a lot of fun. I, you know, I've, throughout my, my career, I'd say I've done a lot of fairly random advising and, you know, occasional small investing, but it's always been more of a hobby. It's been, you know, friends who are starting a company, yeah, sure, I'll help. Or, uh, you know, friends of friends who, who happen to, um, refer somebody to me. And now I'm getting to see, now that I'm, I'm trying to actually, you know, do it more as like a less of a hobby, more of a business, you know, it's like, I care now if I make money at it. Um, I'm, I'm actually casting a much wider net in terms of the, the companies that I see. And that's really interesting because it's helping me just see different parts of the technology industry that I wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't naturally gravitate to. I'm wondering if when you came into AI from kind of a software engineering perspective, mm-hmm. if that gave you a different view on it from somebody who comes into it from more, let's say they did their PhD in machine learning yeah. and then goes into the AI field. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it, it did really because the state of development tools in AI is pretty poor. I mean, I think it's getting better, but 
you know, I'm used to the software development world where, uh, you know, tools are very sophisticated at this point, and and that's just not the case. You know, people are, you know, like it's it's Python scripting and uh, hacking things together, and oftentimes people don't uh, aren't even familiar with what you can do with source control and things like that. And part of what was interesting to me at at Facebook, the part that I was uh, put in charge of was the uh, the developer experience at Facebook. So all the tools that they use and how can we make um, the AI developers at Facebook more productive and how do you even measure productivity for people like that. And, uh, you know, I never really got to, to finish that work, but it was a really interesting area, I think, that has a lot of growth potential for the future because, um, you know, the kind of things that I think AI developers struggle with now are just the iteration time with, you know, training and so on is so slow and the visibility into like, okay, I can make a model that does something, but why did it do that? And if I tweak it, like, how is it going to change? Um, and explaining the decisions that were made, like all of those tools, both in development and analysis are, you know, we're just scratching the surface at what we can do. And I think they're, I think they're extremely important for the future of, of AI. If we don't figure that out, we're, you know, it's not, it's not going to be good. When I think back to your time at Netscape and then also your time at Rockmelt, you really were at different points in kind of the evolution of the browser ecosystem. I'm wondering how you think about the browser ecosystem today. A lot of people are worried that it's becoming a bit of a monoculture with Chrome on the desktop. Yeah. Some people call uh, iOS and Safari the new IE. Um, yeah. How do you feel about <laughs> the ecosystem today of browsers? Yeah, I, I so I... I mean, I think all the, everything you just said is true. I think at the same time, though, we have things like, um, the Brave browser, for example, where, you know, people are really taking a new look at, you know, hey, can we do something here that's much more private? So I like, I think there is innovation there. But I think that innovation is meeting, you know, the just complete dominance or hegemony of, you know, these big companies. And I'd say, it's more than, you know, Chrome, or like Safari becoming the new IE. I would say, you know, Google's becoming the new Microsoft and, you know, those companies. And I don't think it's through any intention to be evil. You know, Google's famous, don't be evil. But companies act in their own interest. And uh, you really can't even, you know, Apple likes to talk about, you know, privacy and how they're, you know, if you look at it, like all their revenue comes from hardware sales so they can afford to not worry about advertising, but they're just as self-interested as any other company. So there's, there's little charity going on. And I think people, the more people become aware, the better off they are at, uh, and able to make, you know, choices whether they decide like, okay, I'm going to go with Brave or, uh, I'm going to skip, stick with Chrome, but, um, you know, I'm going to keep my eyes open just in terms of my privacy. Obviously, you had an incredibly successful career in software. I'm wondering what you attribute your success to, or maybe some qualities that, that you had or that you pursued in yourself, and were there any major mistakes you made along the way that other people should avoid? Oh, boy, that's a, a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's an incredible amount of uh, good fortune I've had in, in my career, just in terms of the, you know, the the people I've worked with, you know, I mean, meeting Mark and Ben at Netscape and then, you know, going off to do Log Cloud and Opsware with them has been great. Uh, you know, I met Eric Vishria. At, we hired him early on at, uh, at Loud Cloud. And then, you know, he and I went off to do Rock Melt. That uh, was great as well. So I think 
um, you know, probably the primary thing is a lot of luck, and I attribute a lot of um, a lot of it to just the you know uh, the, the the people that I met along the way. And I think the other thing, though, is like when I was at the University of Michigan and working on uh, LDAP and trying to figure out my PhD and, you know, working for the university and trying to solve this problem, you know, I wasn't thinking like it was going to lead to anything in my career. I was just like, okay, there's a problem here I need to solve. And I've found throughout my career that if you just focus on the problem, it's, you know, it's just a highly focused thing to do. And, you know, you can not worry about anything else until you've solved that problem and you get passionate about it, then, you know, good things generally will happen to you. In terms of mistakes, I, you know, I don't know, there's probably too many mistakes to <laughs> to go through. I would just say, and it's kind of you know, funny, just given I, I just talked about focusing on the problem, I would say oftentimes I didn't give weight to uh, like, hey, I should be out there networking more with people. I should be, you know, until I saw the value of marketing at Netscape, like it didn't even occur to me that marketing was important. And I think, you know, probably these days people have a much, um, uh, there's so much information out there, like people have a much uh, more sophisticated pr- uh, perspective than I had when I was coming up. You know, think about how, what do you want to be successful at? Do you want to be successful at technology or do you want to be successful at business and the business of exploiting that technology and bringing it to the masses. And if you want to be successful in business, which uh, a lot of people do, then you need to understand business. You know, Bill Gates might have started off as a technology guy who wrote code, but, you know, he's a businessman now. And (laughs) so is Steve Jobs and uh, Larry and Sergey and all people you admire in business, you know, who have a technology background, they understand the business as well. I'm wondering what it's like to be the head of a large software engineering organization and what it's also like to go from being an individual contributor as you were maybe when you're doing your PhD and a little bit beyond that yeah. to being the head of a large software engineering organization. Yeah, I um, I actually, my, my career is kind of ping pong, I ping pong back and forth between, you know, a CTO kind of role and uh, where I have, you know, either no or few reports and then a um, more an engineering executive role where I have a bunch of people reporting to me. So um, I'm very familiar with that, that difference. And uh, I, you know, I like doing both. I would say I'm more naturally suited probably for the CTO type role. I can do a good job at managing a bunch of people, but it's one of those things where it doesn't come as naturally to me. You know, I have to tape the note to the mirror, like, don't forget, you've got 300 people working for you today and you need to think about people, not technology. And, um, what it's like to manage a big uh, engineering organization is it really is about people versus technology. And it doesn't mean, you know, there's not a lot of technology in the job, but your job is to get the most out of the people and to make sure they have the tools that they need to be the most productive and then, you know, make the what they're trying to do clear, right? So, you know, if you provide people clarity and you give them what they need to do the job, and then you, you know, get in there when they are stuck or break ties. Like that's what it is to manage an engineering organization with a lot of people in it. Versus if you're, you know, in more of a technologist or CTO role, then, you know, it really is looking more to the future and like how, you know, tech, technologically, how does our product evolve? How is the market going to evolve? And you're, you know, you tend to be more tied at the hip with marketing or sales understanding, you know, like what's that? feedback from the customer or uh, how is the market evolving 
Um, so they're actually quite different jobs. And I think a lot of time uh, what happens with people is they don't recognize the difference between the jobs. And they think even, you know, you look at this, oftentimes people will take their best programmer and try to make them a manager. Like you're the best programmer, so let's make you manage all the other programmers. And the people who are successful in making that transition, and first of all, that might be a terrible idea to do that. So think twice before you do that. But if you are going to be successful in managing that transition, then you need to recognize that you're in a different job now and, um, you know, change your mindset to be thinking about your people and how can I make people productive and make the people happy and keep them uh, productive versus, uh, you know, writing code. And I think it's a, it's a common mistake that happens where uh, people will either, you know, take their best programmer and put them in that job. Uh, and sometimes engineers who are like, how do I advance? Well, obviously I go into management, but, you know, maybe I don't like management. Maybe like I like thinking about code. I don't like thinking about people every day. Um, and so they fail to make that, um, that jump. And where companies often fail is they fail to give um, a good career path to their technical people. I think, you know, after Google and Amazon and Apple have sort of showed the way and said, you know, like, hey, look, it's really parallel paths, um, that's really helped a lot. So now if you're a great engineer, you can stay on that path and you can, you know, just keep writing code or be an architect or, you know, do other things that don't require you to have to completely change your personality and all of a sudden be, you know, Mr. People person when you're going into management, which is great. When I think back through your career, you were at the front of a lot of big waves in the software world, the browser wave, the, uh, the cloud wave. And the last few years, you said you got really interested in AI, of course, mm -hmm. worked at Facebook on their AI infrastructure. What do you think is the next wave that if you're coming out of college today, mm. maybe a computer science student, is the one to get involved in it. Is it, of course, AI, or are there other yeah. things on your radar as well? Uh, AI is definitely one, and I think, um, you know, I, I, so I think AI is going to play a big role in, in the future, definitely. Uh, having said that, I think, you know, we're also probably about to go through another, maybe not an AI winter, but an AI cold spell where, you know, the expectations that people have about AI where, uh, and it's surprising to me that even, you know, like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking and these people who I, I th are much smarter than me and should know better are saying, like, you know, we're worried that AI is going to kill us all, <laughs> which I think is like, you know, cavemen uh, looking at fire and saying uh, we need to or, or looking at the wheel and saying we need to worry about, uh, you know, all the traffic management <laughs> in the future. <laughs> like, you know, maybe someday, but we're not close. We're not close at all. Um, so AI is one. The other one I would say, you know, it's really interesting what's going on with, um, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain. Uh, and I would say more blockchain than cryptocurrency. I, I realize, you know, cryptocurrency is kind of what helps power the blockchain. But I think we're at the beginning of what that means. You know, if you have a distributed ledger that is maintained um, accurately and across, you know, the world, like what can you do with that? And people are starting to understand with, you know, NFTs and Everything is built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So that's pretty exciting. I think the crypto part of it is in some ways the least exciting part just because I think if you look at, at Bitcoin and, you know, how much it costs to <laughs> verify a single transaction and, you know, people talk about, I think the original idea was like, okay, well, you don't need trust. You can do transactions without trust and they're going to be super cheap. Well, it turns out they're actually way more expensive. And, you know, it's actually not true that, you don't need trust. Like, you know, I, I don't hold my Bitcoin on my 
USB drive, I hold it through Coinbase, who I have to trust. Even if you do hold it on, you know, your USB drive, you're trusting the software, you're trusting the people who, you know, write and run that software. So anyways, that's just a long way of saying that I think the more interesting thing is going to be what's built on top of that blockchain where traditional transactions, uh, you know, might, um, might change dramatically. I'm also curious what general advice you have for maybe people just exiting with a computer science degree right now, or maybe mm-hmm. people who are a little older and are getting into technology and into the software space. If somebody's just starting their career in software, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think, you know, it's very different these days than, than when I came up. And, you know, when I came up, you know, my ability to just have an interesting idea and implement it was, you know, one one thousandth of what you can do today, just given everything that's out there. Um, and all the libraries you can get and, you know, you can access, you have access to GitHub and everything on the internet. So, you know, my best advice is to get out there and start making stuff. And, you know, certainly I can tell you as an employer, you know, the thing I looked for in especially people coming out of college was always like, what have you, because everybody's got, you know, decent grades, everybody takes the same classes. It's just not that exciting. But the interesting thing is, you know, what have you done like on your own? Not because somebody was telling you to do it, but because like you were interested. And so you decided to hook up a couple cameras to your car and make your own self-driving car or, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, which was a, like a real guy did that. Um, and so, you know, that's my number one thing is just like the amount of stuff that you can do now just on your own and incredibly cheaply is like, it's un- unparalleled. And so I think the more that, you know, you can play around with stuff and gain experience with stuff. The better off you'll be, the more valuable you, you'll be to employers. And also, who knows, you might stumble upon something that you're like, holy cow, this is something that I could make into a company or that the world needs. And I really want to, you know, double down and do this. So it's a, you know, it's a, it, to me, it's a great time to be in software because as, uh, as Mark likes to say, software is eating the world. And it's never been easier to uh, create significant software programs and, you know, test them out in the world and see if people like it. Tim, thanks again so much for coming on. How can listeners follow you on social media? Uh, you know, I'm not a huge, I mean, I'm, I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter. I don't, uh, tweet that often. Um, you know, I don't, I don't post that often on LinkedIn, but sometimes I do, but, um, yeah, you can find me in all those places. Okay, great. And yeah. we'll put links to those in the show notes. Thanks again so much for coming on. I think you offered some great insights for our listeners. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at Kopec Explains. That's K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice, and we'll see you in two weeks.